The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. It's my privilege to welcome uh, to the morning devotions today the Reverend Paul Kim. Uh, Pastor Paul Kim has been the pastor of Harbor Presbyterian Church, North County, a PCA congregation that meets in Encinitas. He's been the pastor there for nine years. Uh, Prior to that, he served at Cerritos Presbyterian Church. And then prior to that, he graduated from here, from Westminster in 2000. So welcome to Morning Devotions. It's great to be here at Westminster Seminary. And what a joy and privilege it is for me just to revisit old stomping grounds and to uh, see some old friends and hopefully meet some new friends as well. I want to share with you uh, a a short uh, passage from the book of Hebrews. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews 1 this morning. And for the sake of time, we're going to just be reading verses 1, 2, and 3, and chapter 2, verse 1. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and 2, verse 1. Hear now God's word. From Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is God's word. One of the things that I've so appreciated about my time here at Westminster was learning about the teaching and the preaching of God's word and the centrality of preaching Jesus Christ. That's been the bedrock for all that I've done in the ministry, and I'm so thankful for that, to behold and to learn about the scriptures and how it all points to Jesus. And even for this morning and this morning's devotional, that's my prayer and desire to, in these brief minutes, to behold Jesus. A couple of, um, several months ago, we went through a series in our church called The Story of God. And we went through the Old Testament, kind of touching upon the big themes, showing the whole story and how it points to Jesus. So we began with creation, looked at catastrophe with the fall, covenant, God's one-sided promise with, with Abraham, community with the Exodus account, God creating a people for himself, close with the sacrificial system, how a holy God can dwell with sinners, conquest with Israel entering the promised land through God as the victorious warrior, crown as, uh, as God's people need a king, cast out as they're kicked out because of their sin, coming home because uh, they're brought back from exile. And even as they are cast out and they return, it is during that time that God raises his people, the prophets, to speak about the coming days in the future. And one of the things, one of the key things that the prophets say over and over again is that God's kingdom will be established again. This is a story, and this is what's happened, but God will come and be with his people again, 
and they would prophesy over and over again that one day God's king, the Messiah, the anointed one, will come and restore all things. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner applies the modern science of probability to just eight prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. And this is more anecdotal, but I thought it was interesting. He says that the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. So that is one, that is a one followed by 17 zeros. And if you're figuring out what that is, that's 100 quadrillion. And to make that more descriptive and clear, Stoner says that if you were to take 1 to the 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them down on the face of the state of Texas, it would cover the entire state two feet deep with silver coins. And if you were to mark one of the coins and stir that all together and blindfold a man and tell him that he could travel anywhere in the state of Texas and he has to pick up that one coin that is marked... What chance would he have of getting that one coin? Stoner says, just the same chance that the prophets would have had writing those eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man, providing that they wrote them in their own wisdom. Our passage that we just looked at this morning, in Hebrews, the writer tells us that the Messiah is here in Jesus. And so what does this say? I just want to consider just two questions. What does this say about Jesus? And what should be our response? And we'll be done. So what does it say about Jesus? And two quick thoughts here for us to ponder. It tells us that Jesus is the final word. And Jesus is the ultimate Lord. So Jesus is the final word. The writer begins by saying that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the phrase, at many times and in many ways, refers to how God revealed himself to different people, to his people, at different periods of redemptive history. And that uh, phrase used in the Greek is an interesting one. It's a Greek word, polytrophos, and it literally means to be in, in, in different pieces. So long ago, God spoke in different pieces and in different ways, but now in Jesus, we have complete and full revelation. And so we see in the Old Testament that God revealed himself to his people, and he revealed himself in visions and in dreams, uh, he, he occasionally face-to-face -face, uh, through a, a theophany. God spoke to Moses at Sinai in thunder and in lightning. And with the voice of a trumpet, he whispered to Elijah at Oreb. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Daniel by dreams. But now this is telling us that in these last days that God has spoken to us in finality through his son. And he's the final word. And notice the contrast he's trying to point out, the prophets versus the son. Because the writer says that before God spoke through the prophets, his people, but now the son. And as you know, the difference here is that with the Old Testament prophets, they always came in and said, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Jesus never said that. Instead, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. With Jesus, he never, it was never, this is what God says, but this is what I say. I am the Lord. And so Jesus is the final and the ultimate word. And if God reveals himself to us in the, a person, what's the significance? St. Augustine says this, that God became a man for this purpose, that since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. 
And so the man Christ Jesus became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. And so the significance of God speaking through his son is that God became a man so that we can go to God. And you know, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that God is, I heard someone put it this way, that God is a giver and not a taker. Meaning that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights. And as you know, with gifts we are to receive. In the Bible, with the story of God, the point of the whole story, it's telling us this amazing heart of God that he is a giver and he says receive the gift of my grace and my son. That's the whole point. Igmar Bergman, a celebrated Swedish filmmaker, told a story when he was listening to the music of Stravinsky. And he had a vision of a 19th century cathedral. And in the vision, Bergman finds himself wandering around this massive uh, edifice. And he comes to this picture, this painting of Jesus Christ. And realizing its importance and the the magnanimity of this big picture of Jesus, Bergman says to the picture... Speak to me. Jesus, that's you. Speak to me. I will not leave this cathedral until you speak to me. But the picture didn't speak to him. And that same year, he produced a movie called The Silence, a film about characters who despair of ever finding God. Where's God? And you see, Bergman's problem he was looking at the wrong picture. He was looking at the wrong picture because he needed to listen to the massive eloquence of the Christ of Scriptures that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And there's finality to this because in these last days is a key term. The last days refer to the time from Jesus' death and resurrection until the end when, he, when Jesus returns in glory. And there is no more final expression of God than Jesus. There will be no other new revelation. Because in Jesus, all the promises of God are met and are yes and amen. He's the one in whom all the Old Testament writings point to, as Luke 24, 27 tells us. And so that's the first thought, that Jesus is the final word. But secondly, Jesus is the ultimate Lord. Because this passage says some incredible things about Jesus in just these short span of verses. And for the sake of time, I can't go into it too much, but I would like us to briefly highlight some of the amazing things that the writer says about Jesus. He says, number one, he's the heir. God appointed him heir of all things. And as the heir, everything belongs to him. Everything is his property. Everything he says is mine. And that's the case in terms of creation and redemption with creation, Colossians 1.16 says all things were created for him. Romans 11.36, to him are all things. So that everything in the physical universe is for him and to him and will consummate in him as the heir of new creation. And with redemption, it's incredible that we are his inheritance, his people, his church. Ephesians 1.18 speaks of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I think I, I gather my interpretation of that, speaking of the fact that to God, we are his treasure. What he values. 
And then in Romans 18, we're told that because Christ is heir to all things, yet we live in him, we are heirs of all. It says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That is astounding. Second, it says that he's a creator through whom he created the world. And the NIV says universe. Cambridge physicist uh, Stephen Hawking said in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll that is over 100,000 light years across, about 600 trillion miles. That's all. And he says, we can know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. It is commonly held that the average distance between those 100,000 million galaxies, each 600 trillion miles across and containing 100,000 million stars, is 3 million light years. And on top of that, Edwin Hubble, based on the Doppler effect, has shown that all red spectrum galaxies are moving away from us and that nearly all are red. And so the universe is constantly expanding, and some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away, racing away at 200 million miles an hour. I'm not a science person, that just sounds like a lot. And as we reflect on that, can you think about the audacity of what this is saying to us? This passage is saying about Jesus and his creative power, that in this vast cosmos he created every speck of dust that is in the 100,000 million galaxies of the universe, on this macro level and the micro level, he created every atom, which is essentially a sub-microscopic solar system with their quarks and leptons and neutrons and neutrinos and you name it, all which have no measurable size. And the Bible says that in John 1.3, through him all things were made, with him nothing was made that has been made. 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul says there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. That is amazing. Third, at the end of the verse 3, he says he's sustainer. It says about Jesus that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus is not passively sustaining the universe like the statue in New York City of Atlas struggling to sustain the dead weight of the world, but instead he's powerfully, gloriously, actively holding all things. And he does it by his spoken word. And here the author of Hebrews doesn't use the Greek term logos to talk about the word of his power. That word logos is often used to refer to indicate revelation. But instead here the author uses the Greek term rima, which refers to the spoken word. And so just as God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And so God upholds the universe by his spoken and powerful word. Fourth, the beginning of verse three, he is a radiance of the glory of God. Radiance is a proper translation as opposed to reflection. Because there's a vast difference between radiance and reflection, isn't there? You can see it between the sun and the moon. Because the moon reflects light, whereas the sun radiates light because it is its source. And in the same manner, Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory, he radiates. He's the radiance of God's glory. In the transfiguration, Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, and we see a picture of him in his glory. It is the radiance of his glory that blinds the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9.3. The Nicene Creed says of Jesus that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. 
5th, verse 3, he is the exact imprint of his nature. And another translation says he's the exact representation of his being. And the, the phrase, the exact imprint, refers to the image on a coin which perfectly responds to the image on a die. And so this is telling us that Jesus, as a final word, is completely the same in his being as a father, but also distinct. So this is like what the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So you have the radiance, Jesus of the radiance, the source, and the representation, or the imprint, that he is. there's, this, this, there's distinction. Two more. Jesus provides purification for sins. He's the one, the once for all sacrifice for sins. The whole book of Hebrews talks about that. He did something that no man or priest could ever do, offer alone the sacrifice that paid for all the sins of, 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 of sinners by his own blood. And Hebrews 8 through 10 talks about the perfect, the final sacrifice of Jesus, how he enters into the Holy of Holies and he brings reconciliation so that we can enter into the presence of God and be reconciled and have access to him. And lastly, we're told at the end of verse 3 that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, there's something very unique about the priests in the Old Testament that when they engaged in ministry, they did not sit down. Levitical priests were always to be standing because no sacrifice was complete. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ sat down. Hebrews 10, 11 through 12 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so Jesus' work is final and complete. And one, just one more significant thing about sitting down for Jesus is that it emphasizes rule and authority. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Luke 22.69 says, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. The right hand is a place of, high, of highest honor. And so in a whirlwind of talking really fast this morning, you have this amazing section on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is the final word. He is the ultimate Lord. And in light of this, what should be our response? Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The book of Hebrews was written to believers in an, un, in an urban setting, in a pluralistic society. The book of Hebrews was written as believers were going through intense persecution and suffering, and in light of the fact that Jesus is the final word and the ultimate Lord, the writer says to God's people, do not shirk back, do not give up, do not drift, but you fix your eyes upon this Jesus. And in 2.1, he gives a warning. We must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard. And the word attention in the Greek can be translated obsession. And so the phrase much closer attention, we must pay much closer attention, takes us to another, the highest level. And so it could be translated furiously obsessed. And so the author is calling us 
to be furiously obsessed with the gospel and is warning us that we will drift, our hearts are prone to wander unless we take the message of Jesus and the gospel and obsess on it by God's work, work it in, by God's grace, work it into our lives. In other words, we are to obsess over God's magnificent and furious obsession over us. So in summary, our passage is telling us that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, that God has kept his promises, that he is faithful, that regarding Jesus, not only is he the promised king, but as the king, he is the heir, he is the creator, he's the radiance of God's glory, he's the representative, he's the one who reigns over the whole universe, and yet has personally provided purification for sins, so that we can be with God, and the writer says, obsess over this. Be furiously obsessed with God's furious obsession and love over you. And as we do that, what happens? I close with this well-known story from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy sees Aslan, the lion, shining white and huge in the moonlight. And in a burst of emotion, she goes to him, bearing her face in his mane, whereupon the lion rolls over on the side and Lucy falls, and, he's, and she's half sitting and half lying with these gigantic paws of Aslan, and he bends forward and touches her nose with his tongue, and his warm breath is all around her, and as she gazes upon the lion, Aslan says, Welcome, child. I wish I had um, a greater voice to highlight that, you know, like James Earl Jones, I don't. But welcome, child. And Lucy responds, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are. And Aslan says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's what our passage does, you see. That as we reflect more and more on Jesus as a final word and the ultimate Lord, we will find God bigger and bigger. And the things of this world and the struggles that we deal with and all those things become smaller and smaller. So instead of being obsessed with the things of this world, you will obsess over God's furious obsession over you, and that's what ultimately matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of scripture that we were just able to scratch this morning and yet it is profound and it is amazing. We thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and speaking to us through your son Jesus and many and all in this room are here to study and be students of your word. We have been gripped by the gospel and may it be again this morning that we would be obsessed that we would have a fixation over the amazing reality of how you are obsessed over us, that you would send your son into this world and go to the cross and bear our sins and take the judgment and wrath of God, die and resurrect so that we can now be with you. Oh God, you are big and great. Become even bigger and bigger in our hearts and our lives. Would you fill us with the knowledge of you so that our hearts and our lives may be drawn forth in praise to your name. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.